the markets. We just can't get enough of them. Markets are the drivers of your wealth and investment strategy. Welcome to Magic Markets with your co-hosts, the Finance Coast and Mohamed Nala. Together, we have more than 25 years of combined experience in the markets. In addition to our weekly free show that you know and love, we have now launched Magic Markets Premium, a weekly show for our subscribers in which we give detailed analysis on global stocks. Every premium show is accompanied by a report covering the company's strategic drivers, its operating environment, its competitors, bull versus bear case, technical trading indicators, and a long-term investment thesis. At just 99 Rand per month, we are committed to making institutional-level analysis affordable for all investors and traders. Visit magic-markets.com to go premium and unlock your full potential in the markets. This podcast is brought to you by Anbro Capital Investments. Invest in the future, invest in growth. Visit investinunicorns.com to learn more. The Unicorn Portfolio is managed by Anbro Capital Investments, an authorized financial services provider. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not financial or investment advice. Please speak to your personal financial advisor. Welcome to episode 65 of Magic Markets and we have a very special guest tonight who we're super excited to welcome back to the show all the way from the Northern Hemisphere which isn't as friendly a place as the Southern Hemisphere these days and, and both of the people I'm looking at on this video are, are up north but we won't, we won't get into that tonight. I think everyone's had more than enough of that on their news feed. So first I'll welcome Mo and, and Mo you're old mates with uh, Craig perhaps you should you should welcome him to this episode. That feels like the right thing for you to do. Yeah Ghost uh, thanks always a pleasure doing this with you. And for our long-time listeners, I mean, Craig is not an unfamiliar voice. Uh, Craig is the Chief Investment Officer at Anbro Capital, and uh, it's just a pleasure having Craig back on the show, simply because, you know, he's one of the guys we can sit and have an honest chat to about markets, about his views. So, Craig, I would just uh, like to introduce you again to some of our newer listeners. Uh, Welcome to Magic Markets. Thanks, Ghost. Thanks, Mo. Thanks for having me. It's always happy to be here and enjoy the time we spend together. Thank you. Now, we've had you on a couple of times before at various stages in the growth company cycle. Craig, you've got as much hair as you did last time, which I think is impressive given where the markets have gone for you. I mean, you are playing in the most volatile uh, of the equity markets, although goodness knows the past week has been pretty rough. All kinds of people, except those holding gold. I finally had some some sparkle in my portfolio after it went absolutely nowhere for basically well over a year, almost two years, I think, that I held that then. So it's it's been pretty crazy in the growth space, hasn't it? And I think before we get into the specifics, it'll be good to just remind our listeners and for our newer listeners who may not have heard from you when you've been on the show previously, you know, what it is you do, what space in the market you play in, and what makes your strategy unique. Sure. Well, I mean, you definitely hit the nail on the head there, Ghost. It's been a hectic, I think, start to 2022 for growth investors as a whole. And, you know, if rising interest rates and inflation and that wasn't enough, as you alluded to earlier, you know, all the, the other shenanigans happening on the north, in the Northern Hemisphere at the moment are just adding to the volatility we've seen in the space. So, I mean, just as a reminder to, you know, people that have heard us speak before and, as you said, any new listeners, what we do at Anbro is, you know, we invest in a portfolio of growth stocks. But it's more than just that. You know, we have a, a large checklist that we tick when it comes to deciding what companies go into our portfolios. And a lot of people have asked us how we differ from something like ARC. And um, the one way I'd say is, you know, that we like to, to stand out and be different is that we invest in companies that are primarily founder-managed and founder-led. What we've seen over time 
is that companies that are managed by the people that started them tend to have considerable outperformance over other companies in the sectors that they compete against and also more importantly I guess for for investors the markets as a whole and you know there are a couple of reasons for that I mean first of all a lot of the time it is as a result of a need or to solve a problem you know that they've experienced in their own lives in one way or another they then look at ways of solving that problem and providing a solution and when they do they often find that there are a lot of other people in the world that might face similar problems or need other or very similar solutions to similar problems. So what they do then is they you know, really create a business to solve a problem or address a need. And that can be done in various ways. It can be by doing something completely new or it can be by doing something better. So you know, what tends to happen is when you solve a, a problem or address a need, you know, you obviously get some customers that come along that are very engaged. You know, they're very, they're very sticky. They like what it is you're doing. They need what it is you're doing. And they tend to stay with you for a long time. You know, in that sort of space, you know, we found that it's a very good place to start, you know, when one's looking for places to put your money. Yeah, Craig, I almost want to jump in here because I think that need that you're looking to fulfill, as well as the distinction that you've highlighted between the likes of your unicorn portfolio, for example, or just even overall the Anbro ethos versus something like an ARC is certainly very important. I'll tell you why I say this, and, and maybe we unpack that a little bit, is that Sometimes a lot of the stocks that fall in ARC, let's use that just as an example, tend to get quite hyped up. You know, they tend to get the headlines. As a result, it it results in a whole bunch of newer players, more volatility coming into the stock. It's not necessarily your, your same subset of investors. So, for example, if Ambro looked at a stock early on in its life cycle, you identified it as a good company, you identified it as, you know, founder-led, ticks all of your boxes – your price action on that stock fundamentally changes as the subset of underlying investors as it falls onto their radar. Now, how has that, if at all, impacted how you see the market? Because I think that's very important in that the subset of risks have evolved because the subset of investors in some of those stocks have changed. Well, I think the one thing which I guess you know works if you just look at ARK and you know what works in their favor but also against them is their transparency I mean they will publish every day what it is they're doing in the portfolio and um, you know that tends to to work against you when markets are falling and, and perhaps a little bit for you when markets are rising so the, a lot of the problem and we found this when ARK sort of peaked in a lot of cases that was where a lot of the growth stock prices peaked Okay, so what you have is a is a fund manager that's done really well and that's attracting a lot of inflows into a fund and is then at the same time communicating to the market on a daily basis what it is that she's buying. And, you know, that in itself creates a lot of demand for the underlying stocks. And, and what happened was you saw people chasing the share prices up and you saw the ARC portfolio buying buying shares as well. And it got to the point where at the peak of the markets, the ARC fund were, was a substantial shareholder in a whole bunch of these smaller, high-growth businesses. And, you know, that did result in a lot of inflation to their share prices. So they're all being inflated up, not necessarily from a fundamental perspective, but simply because there were a lot of flows. And obviously, when the market then turns and things fade away a little bit, and, you know, and then you're a seller, you know, you don't have that marginal buyer for a lot of those smaller, smaller cap stocks. 
the sort of growth that she looks for and, and even that we look for, a lot of the time tends to come from those companies that are a little bit smaller by nature. Because these are businesses that have an enormous opportunity ahead of them, particularly relative to their current size. And, you know, what she did, you know, I think perhaps not even realizing it at the time, was really just cause a whole lot of havoc in that market and in that particular space. So, you know, a lot of the gains were, were caused by the inflows. And now a lot of the losses are caused by the outflows, you know, and there's some stocks that she's had in her portfolio that, you know, thankfully we haven't had companies like Skills and Palanta, which she's recently exited in entirely. And, you know, the last trade that she was doing, I think, in something like Skills was at something like, I think, $4 odd a share. And that's after it had dropped from something like $30 odd a share. So right at the end, you know, when she couldn't either stomach it anymore or had better place for that money, she sold out and... And unfortunately, that put even more pressure on the stock and just pressed it lower. Yeah, and Craig, people who regularly read my stuff will know I've written many, many times about Kathy and what she's been up to. And you've talked to some of the points there. You know, she almost became too big for that sector of the market. And then what ended up happening was she had to start selling liquid stakes to meet redemptions, leaving the portfolio with more and more of this illiquid stuff. And then when those prices started to drop, things got even worse. So I can imagine that skating around the kind of arc big up and big down in this market for your fund has not necessarily been easy. And I mean, you know, have you got a sense of hand of what sort of overlap you've got to her portfolio now, just in percentage terms as a more or less? Because I think that's a question that'll be top of mind for a lot of listeners thinking of, you know, potentially investing in Unicorn or contacting you for other options you may have. Sure. So I think, I mean, we've done a lot of work in that because it was something we, we were watching quite closely and we were seeing, you know, the impact on a lot of these share prices. And and there are, I think, a few fundamental differences between our portfolio and, and the ARC portfolio. And the first I'd say is that the ARC portfolio is a lot more concentrated than we are. So they'll have almost, I think, 55% at last check of the holdings in their top 10 stocks. So, I mean, in our top 10 stocks, we have about 30, 33, 34% exposure. Also, we have a lot more stocks in our portfolio than she does. I think she has around about 40. We've got about 65. And there are various reasons for that, which we can always chat about. Also, she would, I think, or ARC would describe their portfolio as a, as a portfolio that invests in innovators or in innovation. Whereas, you know, we focus, as I said earlier, on founders and founder-led businesses. So it does mean that there's some overlap. Obviously, a lot of people that found and run companies are also innovators. But also what we've seen is that it, most of the portfolio is also then um, skewed or a lot more of it is skewed toward things like biotechnology and pharma and that sort of thing. As you can imagine, particularly after um, the whole COVID issue, you know, there was a heck of a lot of innovation that took place in that in that pharma space. In terms of the actual similarity of stocks in our portfolios, there's about a 30% overlap. So, you know, we have, I think, not as close a correlation as a lot of people may have initially thought than, you know, too often we, than we actually do. But that hasn't necessarily not impacted our portfolios because, you know, the sentiment toward growth stocks and the sector as a whole has been quite bearish. And Craig, maybe I can make one point there before handing over to Mo. So the point is when you measure stock overlap, so let's say you both have 10 stocks in your portfolio and five of them are the same, the overlap is 50%. But that isn't taking into account the exposure, which is a point you've made around, you know, how many stocks you have and what percentages are sitting in each one because you can have five of the same stocks, but if the percentage exposures, the allocations in the funds are very different, then the outcome will be very different as well. And the other point is that the correlations, I would imagine, are bigger in the short term. 
So what I mean by that is all these growth stocks kind of move together when things are very volatile. You know, if there's a big sell-off in growth, the good stuff gets sold down with the bad stuff. And that creates an opportunity as well as an irritation, you know, if you're kind of just pricing the whole thing and saying, oh, look at what's going on in this growth space. But actually, at that exact moment is when so many investors panic and they go, oh, let me get out of this completely. And that is the exact moment at which you should be stock picking and saying, great, growth is on sale. Actually, here are my 10 favorites. You know, let me jump in. And, and that I would imagine is one of the benefits of an active management strategy is you know what your favorites are. So when they've come down and to the extent you have cash available in the fund and inflows, you can then either buy those names or you can switch out of other names, jump into the ones you like. I mean, that's where active management shines. Well, I mean, that's the one thing I'd say. One of the other differentiating factors is that we are, are never fully invested. Now, we always keep a pretty healthy cash balance in our portfolio. And I mean, and going into the sell-off, we were at maximum cash. We were at 20% cash in the portfolio, which unlike ARC, I guess, that are always fully invested, does give us a, a heck of a lot of flexibility. So, you know, we're not under immediate pressure to deploy that cash. As the markets start falling, we can wait and see which opportunities come up and take advantage of them as they come up. We don't necessarily have to be selling things to buy other things. Also, you know, the, the cash buffer does provide a, almost a reduction in volatility as well, you know, because the you know the cash acts as a bit, maybe a little bit of a drag in the portfolio when the markets are rising, but it also acts as a support, you know, to the portfolios when markets are falling. So we like the fact that it's there and it gives us optionality. And it's not to say we won't ever be fully invested. You know, if things get really cheap or you know, opportunities become just too great, you know, we we're not afraid to put that money to work. But going into this, we did kind of see that you know, this part of the market was looking high and we, you know, opted to be at our maximum cash limit, you know, just as an in-case. Yeah, thanks, Craig. I think that's very valuable insight in that, you know, it's allowing you to be a lot more nimble. It's allowing you to kind of take advantage of the volatility. I mean, we've had chats, I think, on our previous show when we had you on as a guest in terms of how volatility can actually present opportunities. And likewise, I think that that tactical switching from being kind of overweight cash to then maybe even fully utilizing that cash if you see the right subset, absolutely spot on. I almost want to backtrack a little bit because I think we got a little sidetracked talking a lot about Ark and Kathy Wood. I want to zoom out a little bit and say, you know, maybe it's worthwhile. I think it's worthwhile. Just reminding some of our newer listeners around some of the ethos that sits in Ambrose, specifically around your views on growth versus value. And the reason why I say this is that people see these as mutually exclusive. You're either in the growth camp, you're either in the value camp. And I think you shared some very fascinating insights with us. And again, to our newer listeners, we can point you to the older episodes as well. But maybe just to recap that, you know, how do you contextualize the whole growth versus value approach? And is it right for the market to look at those as two mutually exclusive themes, if you want to call it that? I know the answer. We've had this chat before. But maybe share your views with, with our listeners. Sure. You know, the one thing we often get get asked is a question like that, you know, is, is what is your attitude toward values? And, you know, how do you fit into the space? And, and our answer to that all the time is really, you know, it really depends on the investment style or investment strategy that, that different people have. There's no right or wrong answer. It really is just dependent on what it is that you're after. I mean, we sent out a note a couple of weeks ago where we explored this topic and we looked at, you know, in the SA context, a growth and a value stock and and compared the two. And it was British American Tobacco versus Capitec. And, you know, the one, you know, you could describe as a, a very sort of boring, 
deep value play where people are constantly questioning, you know, the existential threat of the business being tobacco and, um, you know, how were they going to survive? And obviously that gets priced into the market, gets priced into the stock, stock becomes incredibly cheap. And, um, you know, that becomes a, a really good investment and a big attraction for value investors. Capitech, on the other hand, has been a phenomenal investment for anyone that purchased it back in the day and who's had the courage to hold it. And when I say had the courage, and that's because Capitec has been an incredibly volatile stock. You know, for, for people that compare it to something like British American Tobacco as a value play, you know, Capitec moves by 3 or 4% a day regularly. You know, now someone who likes to sleep well at night, doesn't like seeing big pieces of their portfolio fluctuate by that kind of of quantum on a daily basis. However, you know, the return that Capitec has delivered over, say, the last 10 or 15 years has been significantly greater than that of British American Tobacco. But British American Tobacco has also delivered a fantastic return, you know, if one includes the dividends that they pay out. And, you know, those dividends reinvested would have resulted in an incredible investment, you know, for someone that is far less um, risk tolerant, but also you know, looking for a good company to invest in. What we look at when we look at growth and, and value is we like to look at it a little bit differently. And we want to see, you know, for a really sort of simple way of saying or putting it is growth in value. That's what we look for. You know, so we're looking for companies that can grow their value over time and in ways that are considerably faster than, say, economies as a whole and markets as a whole. So, you know, what fits our sort of space is a company that's growing a lot faster than the market that they're participating in. And that indicates that they're obviously gaining market share in that market. And then the market that they're participating in must be growing a lot faster than the economy that market is participating in. So, you know, so putting it all together, you see in a company that's growing faster than the economy and faster than the, you know, than their peer group. You know, over time, you know, what you'll find is that the two main drivers of share price performance or company valuation, if you like, over the long term is sales growth and margins. And this was a very interesting slide that Goldman Sachs actually put out a couple of weeks back where they looked at the S&P 500 so over the last 20, 30 years and they looked at the, you know, the sort of top quintile performers in the S&P 500, and they noticed a few things. And they said, well, if one looks at a one-year return, then something like um, valuation has about a, I think it was about a 48% impact on the one-year return of a stock. Whereas something like um, top-line growth and margins has about a 42% impact. So in other words, people will look at the value of a stock today, and it will look cheap, and they will buy that stock today. However, if you zoom out five years and 10 years, the results are actually phenomenal. So, I mean, what kind of happens is valuation actually drops to 15% of the driver of a share price over five years and 5% to the driver of a share price over 10 years, whereas margins and sales growth escalate to 78% of the driver of a share price over five years and then to almost 90% over 10 years. So, you know, this is a recipe that can be applied to any investment, whether you're a value investor or a growth investor. But what it really boils down to is you want to be investing in companies that can grow their sales and either grow or maintain their margins at levels which are above average. And, you know, particularly in times like these where you see interest rates rising, 
and inflation rising. I mean, you need to be investing in businesses that either have really strong margins because they can absorb price hikes a lot better than companies that have very thin margins. And obviously, you want people that can raise prices and grow their top line at the same time. Now, it doesn't always happen simultaneously because, you know, there's always companies jockeying for market share or, you know, space in the market. But at the end of the day, those are the things that will drive your return. So whether you are looking at a growth investment or a value investment, you cannot get long-term outperformance if you don't invest in companies that aren't growing their top line and aren't, um, you know, delivering superior margins. And I think that's kind of what we're looking at. So to your point, Mo, it doesn't really matter whether you're a value investor or a growth investor. I think it really, what we're looking for is growth in value. And, you know, and those are companies that fit that kind of book. Growth in value and value in growth, eh, Craig? So that makes me feel better about what we do in Magic Markets Premium, Mo, because we don't just look at the valuation. We look at the whole story, and Craig's 100% right. So over the short term, when you're swing trading, the valuation is critical. We've seen that in these growth stocks in the last year. If you bought into you know, that part of the market at the very top, you've had a, a pretty painful year. 15 years from now, you might have forgotten about the pain, hopefully. Um, but in the short term, it can be, it can be quite nasty. So that, that is really interesting. Another point with value stocks and something we notice when we do the work is if a share price is only returning 10% a year, then if you buy 10% too high, you're giving away a year's return. Effectively, your margin for error is not great on valuation when you're buying something that, something that has a relatively low expected return. If it's something that's big and volatile and it can do 30% in a year, you do have a somewhat better margin of safety to get it a little bit wrong on valuations. And this is all the stuff that makes markets so fun and interesting. I mean, I have an allocation to Unicorn. I think it just makes sense in the context of, of everything in the world. You know, long term, you can't ignore, you shouldn't ignore these growth stocks. And Craig, I think the way you guys handle it is, is great. Oh, thank you. The other thing I think which is important just to comment about the whole valuation issue is, you know, if you, if you look at PEs, for example, which is something a lot of people tend to understand, you know, you can have a, a PE today of a of a hundred on a stock, but if that stock is growing at twenty or thirty percent per annum, fast forward ten years down the line, the company can have a PE of ten, um, but the share price can be five times greater than it is today. And and that's sometimes a little bit difficult to get your head around, you know, because you know, people that are paying a hundred times earnings for a growth stock today do have to be fairly confident that, that company can grow at 20 or 30 or 40% per annum for the next 10 years. Um, and that's, you know, one of the reasons why, you know, when we're looking at stocks to invest in and to put into our portfolios, you know, we do take a pretty diverse approach because we do realize that, you know, there are a lot of great companies out there with a lot of great potential, but they don't all become the next Amazon or the next Apple or the next Google or whatever the case may be. We do spread it around. And, you know, we, when we start the portfolios off, we put an equal weighting of cash into each stock and we give them all the same chance, you know, to deliver in the portfolio. As time progresses, however, those that start, I guess, differentiating themselves from the pack start becoming more and more obvious to you. You know, you start seeing how the business models are, are gaining traction. You start seeing how the businesses are um, making waves in the markets that they're in and their share prices start pulling away from those that aren't delivering like you originally thought they would. And then the, the strategy after that is to really keep investing in those great businesses. You know, so we don't add money to the ones that are underperforming. We leave them there and we let them, you know, just let the thesis play out because things don't always happen overnight. But for those that are gaining traction and are doing well, you know, we're not afraid to put more money behind them and, 
And that's how we you know, aim to create real long-term wealth for our clients. Yeah, Craig, I think, you know, I just want to land on, on one thing. I mean, we just cognizant of time, so maybe a last question from my side. So first of all, to, to Ghost's point, in the interest of full disclosure, yes, I do have money with the Andro team. It's not in Unicorn, though. It's in a segregated mandate. The point I wanted to raise with Craig, it's because it's something I haven't landed on in my own head yet as well. So we can use something like a Netflix as an example. It's a founder-led as an example. But for years and years, it didn't make any money. You know, they were deep in that J-curve. And yet a lot of growth investors found that, bought it in, even though if you looked at current earnings, it was losing money. I personally haven't been able to do this in terms of reconciling, in terms of investing in a stock that's currently losing money when I don't have line of sight in terms of when that turns. How do you contextualize that as someone who looks for value in growth and growth in value? That must be fundamental to your investment thesis and how you look at the world. So maybe share some of those insights with us uh, just as a parting shot from us on this particular show. Thanks, Mo. I mean, that's a great question. I'll answer it as, as follows. First of all, you have to come off a base where you know the business has a strong balance sheet to start with. And, and that's fundamental you know, to the stocks that we invest in. The companies have to have no debt and a very large cash balance on their portfolio, or rather not the portfolio, on the balance sheet. So in other words, they have to have the cash that allows them to invest in their business, even if they're losing money. Now, the way you try and look through that is to look at the total addressable market that this company has, the size or the, or the value of that market, and the, the, the rate at which that market is growing, the rate at which they are growing relative to that market, and the potential upside they have as a result of that. If their access to capital is easy and they're able to, to get cash on the balance sheet while they're burning it, and the you know those sort of building blocks, if you like, fall into place, you can start making a case for why, as that company scales, it starts becoming profitable. The other thing I think one also has to realize is with a lot of these businesses, they plow, in most cases, almost 100% of, of their earnings into R&D, um, sales and marketing, or so research and development, sales and marketing, and staff. And for most companies, if you strip those figures out of their earnings or out of their income statement, they actually do make money. You know, so the other thing I'd like to I'd like to say is, you know, what's important is obviously cash flow. Most of the companies we're investing are free cash flow positive. So they might not be or they might not be seen as enormous enormously profitable at the moment. But that's because they take all this cash that they have and all the cash that they generate and they just push it into business growth and business development. And that is critical because you know if you're trying to build market share or gain a foothold in a market that's growing rapidly, often it's the first movers that that really strike it big and they become the ones to catch. You don't want to be chasing the you know the the first mover. You want to try and be that first mover. So if you want to something, invest in the business aggressively. And that's what a lot of the founders that we invest in do. You know, they're not too perturbed about earnings necessarily in the short term. I mean they're looking at the big picture and where this business can be and what this business can become. 10 years out, 20 years out, 50 years out. You know, that I think is the, is the you know, the trick when one looks at companies like this. And like you said, Mo, it's very hard to get your head around because in a conventional sort of market or when you're looking at a business, you ideally, you know, they want to see the path to profitability or the business should be profitable and it gets easier to get your head around that and to understand if it's cheap or if it offers value, if it's making money. With a lot of these companies, however, they are in businesses which are very small, but the opportunity is huge. 
you know, and they need to strike while the iron's hot, so to speak. So as long as they've got the cash to do it by, you know, being able to fund um, their businesses relatively easily, or, you know, they generate a lot of free cash flow, which enables them to grow with their own cash and not have to borrow money, then that gives them the opportunity to self-fund and grow as they grow with their market. Which is also a point, I think, just before we end off, is, you know, is, is why a lot of these companies aren't always affected by interest rates. You know, they don't have debt, you know, so there's no debt to pay. You know, whereas a lot of the time, you know, companies that are, are maybe larger, a little bit slower, you know, they more into things like financial engineering, you know, trying to get a better way to generate returns by either refinancing debt or buying back shares or, or paying dividends or whatever the case is. And, you know, depending on the business you have, that could be a wonderful way of doing things. But these businesses don't really, you know, feel the brunt of higher interest rates. And, you know, which I think is interesting. You know, a lot of people don't often consider that when they think of the sort of growth narrative. Yeah, thanks, Craig. That's super interesting. And as a final point for me, the yields go up and that can put big pressure on the valuations of these things, but they don't necessarily feel it in their profitability. In a lot of the value stocks, the valuations don't necessarily feel it, but a lot of them have debt. And so you actually see it in the earnings. So this is part of what makes investing fun, right? Is it's, uh, it's not easy. Uh, Craig, I think that is all we have time for uh, this time around. You're going to be joining us pretty much every month for the foreseeable future, which is, is really exciting. And we're looking forward to tapping into that skill set and, and learning more about the space. And maybe next time we can have some more stock-specific chats and see what's in the portfolio and what you're buying. But for now, I think thank you and uh, good luck out there. It's not easy to be managing money in this market. Yeah, no, thanks, Mo. Thanks, guys. Really always appreciate the time. Happy to be here. It's, it's been a challenge, but, you know, the way we look at it is, is there's a big future ahead of us and for the companies we invest in. So we're still very excited about them. That's great. Thanks, Craig. And uh, to our listeners, we hope you enjoyed the show. Until next week, same time, same place. This podcast is brought to you by Anbro Capital Investments. Invest in the future. Invest in growth. Visit investinunicorns.com to learn more. The Unicorn Portfolio is managed by Anbro Capital Investments, an authorized financial services provider. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not financial or investment advice. Please speak to your personal financial advisor.